Thank you. If you don't mind, I'm going to come down here where I can see you. And thank uh, Tyndale for this wonderful honor, and especially my classmates who nominated me. Uh, and my friend, Dr. Cunningham, who isn't here, he lives in Langley, British Columbia, he was connected for years with uh, Trinity Western. And he and I have taught the course which has been translated into 43 languages and four more at present being translated to make it 47 next year, God willing, called Standing Strong Through the Storm. And it's for Christians, usually new Christians, young in the faith, who do not have a significant understanding of what the Bible teaches and especially about how you respond to persecution when it comes. And so uh, I thank all of you who had anything to do with this and for those of you who came today. I want to honor also my Golden Miler friends who are here, both from TBC and from London College of Bible and Missions. We graduated 50 years ago. Can you believe that? Do you know what it was like? Do you remember what it was like in our graduating year, the class of 66? The United States was at the height of the Vietnam War. They, they drafted more young people than had ever been drafted before, and that's why we got all these draft dodgers coming to Canada. It was in the year of, started in the year of 1966. That was also the year that the first successful human heart transplant occurred. Now they happen every day, but that happened first in 1966. It was the year of miniskirts and bell-bottoms. <laughs> you have to really be old to remember those, but that was 1966. In that year, an average home in Canada cost $15,000. If you live in this GTA, you're all saying, wow. Uh, at that time also, gasoline was 35 cents a gallon, and the minimum wage was $1.50 an hour, 1966. But a wonderful time, and that was the year we graduated. In our case, uh, I spent every class that I took at school with my friend Dr. Bob Morris, who's here with the Golden Milers today as well. And I still remember the things that occurred in those four years. I was a pastor's kid, but I was older before I really committed my life to Jesus. In fact, I was 19 years old before I gave my life fully to the Lord. And when I was 20 years old, I found myself at London College of Bible and Missions, now Tyndale. So, in a sense, though I had gone to church all my life, these were the formative years of my spiritual life. Those four years I spent at school were the foundation for all that came afterwards in every way, including marriage. I mean, I went to a school which we commonly referred to as London College of Better Marriages. Uh, and ours is one of them. I met Diane at this school and we were married, well, last July we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. A wonderful experience. 
And that changed my life. But God changed my life even more. And as I think back on those four years that I spent at school, I still hear voices. And those of you who are my classmates will probably uh, enjoy this memory. I still hear voices. Dr. Kermit Eckelbarger, our Greek and New Testament professor, who would say, a text taken out of context is likely going to become a pretext. That was his statement. And uh, Dr. Bill Wallace, our missions professor, who always said, the God of the Bible is a missionary God. Then we had professors like Dave Bell who taught us homiletics, how to preach. And the thing I remember most about that, because it wasn't my favorite class, what I remember most about that was Dave Bell saying, men, we were all men in that class at that time. I'm sure homiletics class has women in it today. But he would say, when you preach, make sure those people go home with one big idea. One big idea. That's what you should be communicating. And then, of course, we have Dr. Don Leggett. Who could not forget Dr. Leggett? And many of you who were here at OBC had Don Leggett. We were privileged to be in his first four years of teaching in Canada and to sit in his Old Testament class, in his Hebrew class, and hear him say, if, men, if you do not understand the Old Testament, you cannot really and truly understand the New Testament well. And those things have stayed with me all of these years and have been significant. After Bible school, I went to university where I studied communications. And there were aphorisms of those days that have also stayed with me. The most famous one of the time was a guy, a Canadian guy named Marshall McLuhan who said, the medium is the message. And we all studied, I studied a whole year trying to figure out what that meant. But the other aphorism that was common in the late 60s was that meanings are in people talking about the symbols we use to communicate, even the words we use, the meanings are really in the people who receive them. And you must remember that. I had a, an outstanding example of this in my life in 1992. My bride, Diane, is Ukrainian background. Her grandparents came to Canada from the Ukraine. She had never been to the country so in 1992, after having been there several times myself, I said to her, we're going back to your country of origin to visit. So we went on the first anniversary, the late August of 92, the first anniversary of, of uh, independence after the fall of the Soviet Union. Wow, what a party. There was dancing in the streets like I've never seen anywhere, anytime. It was an amazing time. On the Sunday we were there, we went to a Messianic Jewish community service. It was very special, and after the service, they took us out for supper. And over supper, they shared with me a story that I have never forgotten either. And it illustrates the fact that meanings are in people. They said, do you remember 
the story of Fiddler on the Roof when there were pogroms constantly plaguing the Jewish people who lived here in the Slavic country. And there were many conflicts. And in one community particularly, there was tremendous conflict where the Slavic people were trying to drive the Jewish people out of town. And the Jewish people were frustrated with this and they said, look, enough of this, let's have a debate. If you win the debate, we'll leave voluntarily. If we win the debate, you let us stay and we'll live in peace. So they had a debate. The Ukrainian people chose the Orthodox priest to represent them. The Jewish people chose the rabbi to represent them. And then they met together and decided to make the debate even more difficult. It would be non-verbal, symbols only. A non-verbal debate, imagine. And so the community assembled at the town hall and they drew straws and the Orthodox priest got to go first. And he stood up and he said this. It was the rabbi's turn now to come and respond and so the rabbi came to the front and he went like this. Now the priest gave his second message and he held up three fingers. The rabbi came back to the stage looking a little bit puzzled but he held up one finger. Now the priest went over to the cabinet that was at the side of the room and he took out a plate on which he placed a small loaf of bread and a glass of wine. He held out this plate of bread and wine and then sat down. The rabbi came up and looked really quite puzzled at this, but it was his turn. So he reached in his pocket and he pulled out an apple and he held out the apple. And the priest said, you win, you win, you Jewish people are too smart, I can't go anywhere from here, you win, and he walks off the stage to the, to the left. And the Ukrainian people say to him, Father, how did you lose? He said, well, I said to him, God is everywhere. But he said to me, God is also right here. I said to him, God is three persons. But he also said to me, God is one. And he said, I showed him the elements of the Eucharist that say Christ died for the sins of the world. And he pulled out an apple which said to me, but all men are sinners and I couldn't go anywhere from there. They win, they win. So the Jewish people are now over here. The rabbi is walking off the stage here and they're saying, Rabbi, Rabbi, how did you win? He said, I don't know. He said to me, you Jewish people can live anywhere else in the world if you want to live. But I said to him, we're going to live right here. <laughs> he said to me, you Jewish people have three days to get out of town. And I told him, but we're not going anywhere. So he said, well, but Rabbi, what was that plate that had the bread and the wine on it? And the rabbi says, that's what I really don't know. He showed me his lunch, I showed him my lunch. <laughs> now, 
This was told to me by Jewish messianic believers who had no idea what that little funny story communicates, that meanings are in people. And those meanings can be different for many of us, even having the same input. And so it's something that communicators have to constantly be aware of. I want to share with you one of the most impacting messages that I ever heard or saw. Actually, I saw this message more than I heard it. And that's why the meaning of it was so significant to me. Diane and I were in the Philippines as missionaries. Uh, We had adopted a third child, Melinda, who, by the way, uh, spent two years at OBC a few decades ago. And uh, we attended Union Church of Manila, a wonderful church experience that we had for the 15 years we were there. And at this church, you had expatriates from all over the world, along with about 50% Filipino congregation, uh, maybe 600 people or more on a Sunday morning, and a significant church for visiting people. Whenever visitors came through, especially significant, well-known speakers would come through, and they would be given the pulpit to share. One Sunday morning, a very well-known person, who you would know if I mentioned his name, came and held up a big Bible. And he came to the front of the stage. Our pastor in Manila was the one who modeled the way that I've tried to speak ever since. He spent 20 hours a week uh, writing his manuscript of his sermon. And then he spent up to 20 hours to memorize it. And then he would stand at the front, as I am now, every Sunday. Now, it's easy to do this once. Try to do this 52 times in a year. And he would stand at the front of the church and share his message with us from memory, including the passage of Scripture. On this particular Sunday, this visiting minister, who was the head of an NGO that looked looked out for poverty issues around the world, came to speak and he stood at the front just as I am now with a great big Bible in his hands, hardcover. And he said, he started his message this way. This is my Bible. I have cut out of this Bible all of the passages that refer to the poor. And he opened the covers of the Bible And all these little pieces of paper floated to the ground where he had cut out of this Bible all the passages in the Bible that refer to poor or the poverty issues and our need for concern for the poor. And then he held up this emaciated book after the floor was covered with little bits of paper. He held up this emaciated book and he said, This is the Western Bible. I never forgot that. Because for me, it had meaning in a special way. Because I had been learning and meeting people from what we call the persecuted church around the world. These aren't from North America, obviously. But in meeting them and listening to how they read their Bible, 
and how they focus on the Bible, I thought to myself, whoa, that's what we also do in the West with topics like suffering and persecution. It's like we cut them out. Now, I was going to do that today for dramatic effect, but I didn't have time, actually, to go through the entire Bible and cut out all those pages. But what a dramatic effect it is when you see parts of God's Word floating to the floor and that emaciated volume that is left. And I believe it's the same with suffering and persecution. There is so much of that in God's word that if you cut it out, you'd have a pretty emaciated book left. Much of the New Testament was written by those who were persecuted to those being persecuted and how to endure and persevere under those kind of challenges. The first person I met who lived this, whose life was a shining example of this, was from the country of China. I was still with FEBC radio. We were broadcasting 18 hours a day into China and never getting one response. Can you imagine broadcasters who love to get letters, or now, of course, you get emails and Twitters and phone calls. We didn't have any of that kind of contact in the 1970s. 1977, right after Mao Zedong had died, I was invited to join a Canadian friendship tour to go to China. I was living in Manila. They telexed me. Anybody remember what a telex looked like? That was our communication tool internationally. I got a telex from Alan Waddell here in Toronto, a Christian brother who the government had asked to put this group together from across the country, saying, we got one spot in this group for a journalist slash broadcaster. Are you interested in going? I telexed him back immediately. I don't even have to pray about this. Yes, I want to go to China because I could take my shortwave radio with me and my AM band radio, which it had on the same instrument, because we were broadcasting on both waves, and for the first time, get a tape recording for our broadcasters to prove that the gospel programs could be heard inside the country. And so I went there, and on our last day in Beijing, a little lady came to our hotel, the Beijing Hotel, And she said, is any one of your group a Christian? And the group said, oh, go talk to Paul over there. He's a Christian. So she came to me and said, and she spoke perfect English. She said, are you a Christian? I said, yes. She said, do you happen to have any Chinese Bibles with you? I said, no, I live in the Philippines and I only speak English in terms of what I read in my Bible. And she said, well, we are desperate for Bibles here, and if you ever come back, please bring us some Bibles. I said, well, it's a miracle I'm here this time. I mean, there was no tourism in China in those days, and we were there on a Canadian friendship tour because of Pierre Trudeau establishing diplomatic relations in 1972. And I said, I don't think I'll ever have a chance to come back here, and she looked at me with these soft, warm, moist eyes that she had, and she said in perfect English, you will come back to China, and when you do, promise me you will bring me some Chinese Bibles. Well, 
If you don't think you're going to come back, it's easy to make the promise, right? So I made the promise and then sat at her feet for the next two hours listening to her life story. She'd studied medicine in Beijing, an extension of NYU, New York University, in the late 40s before the liberation, as the communists called it, or revolution, as our side of the world called it. And therefore, she'd learned English. She spoke fluent English. And she was studying medicine. She became a medical doctor, did all of her years practicing in the countryside, and ultimately came back to the capital of Beijing to be the head pediatrician at the largest hospital in Beijing. 1965 came the Cultural Revolution. This is when Mao set the young people from high school age up through college age on a rampage which ended up being called the Cultural Revolution. They were to destroy all the olds, the old cultures, the old faiths, the old religions, everything that was old was to be destroyed because they were building a new society. It was probably the darkest era in Chinese modern history. And Christians suffered the most in that era. I'm sure you've read, if you do any reading at all, you've read the stories of some who suffered so severely during that cultural revolution period. Auntie Esther, as I called her, her name was Esther Lee. Auntie Esther suffered just like everyone else. But as she shares about her suffering, I saw something in that story that touched my heart. Now normally I would show you a PowerPoint when I speak with pictures of these people, but uh, Dr. Nelson, I chose not to have a PowerPoint today, just for you. <laughs> Private joke, Gary was in London yesterday morning and the, his PowerPoint didn't work. So you have to picture in your mind Auntie Esther, little lady. When I met her, she was in her late 60s. But she became the head pediatrician. At the time of the Cultural Revolution, her superior came to her and said, Esther, it's no longer politically correct to be a follower of Jesus in this country. Do you think that could ever happen here? That's what happened in China in 1965. And he said, you must publicly deny your faith in Jesus. She said, I, I will never, I can never do that. I love Jesus and I will never deny him. And so the next morning as she came to work, she was grabbed by a group of colleagues that were put up to this by the supervisor. She was taken uh, to a barber shop and half of her head was shaved to the skin, the other half left remaining. And she had to wear a sign that said, I am a fool for Christ. She went back to work and they was called into the boss's office and he said, Esther, because you will not cooperate with us, I have to take your job away. You can no longer be the, the head of the pediatrics department nor the, the main surgeon of this hospital. But from now on, you will clean the floors of the hospital and clean the toilets of the hospital. Your salary will be reduced from $50 a month to $15 a month. And she said, I said, Lord, if this is how I serve you, 
I'm willing to do this. So for 10 years, this talented medical doctor spent her time on her knees scrubbing the floors and cleaning the toilets of her hospital. And when she tells you this, her eyes flash. And she says, my toilets were the cleanest toilets in all of China. (laughs) And if you've been to China, you know that's saying something. And she says, it doesn't matter what job you do. It only matters that you're faithful and loyal to Jesus. And for 10 years she did this. She said, I would pray for my supervisor while I scrubbed that floor. When I cleaned the toilets, I would name each, each one of those toilets after one of my colleagues and I would pray for them as I cleaned the toilets. <laughs> 10 years went by of this, 10 long years of a reduced salary. She had to even buy the cleaning materials out of the 15 bucks a month that she was paid. The Cultural Revolution ended approximately 75. Mao Zedong died in 1976. So by the time of his death, the Cultural Revolution was a thing of the past. And I was there with her three months, four months after she had been reinstated as the lead surgeon and the head of pediatrics of her hospital. She was paid back all of the money that she lost over 10 years in one lump sum. And she said to me, see, God is good all the time. I had to wait 10 years to see that, but God provided. Now my daughter, she says, now my daughter is going to medical school because of this money that God provided that I had lost over those 10 years. She was now retirement age. Doctors are even utilized, even though 60 is the normal retirement age in China, a doctor often will work to 70 because there is a shortage of that type of worker in the country. She was nearing retirement. She said, I'm going to retire because then I can give all my time to witness to people about Jesus. And the way she did it, she'd get on a bus, and buses in China are always crammed. She'd get on the bus at the terminal where it begins so she could get a seat and sit down for the journey. She would open her Bible, her New Testament. She would read stories about Jesus out loud on the bus in a time when this was not kosher, but she did it anyway because she said, after all this happened to me, what can they do to me now? And she would have in her pocket little slips of paper with her address. And if anybody showed any kind of interest to her reading of the story of Jesus, she would pull out the slip of paper and give it to them, which said, if you'd like to know more about what I'm reading, come to my home at such and such an address. And there were people beating their way to her door every day. Every day people came to hear about Jesus because of this lady's witness. Some of them even party members in the leadership of the country of China. She promised the Lord that anybody who came to her door, she would share the gospel. One day a policeman knocked at her door because he wanted to know why are so many people coming to this house. 
And she at first froze when she saw him standing there and asking her that question, but then she remembered her promise to the Lord. And so she invited him in. She served him tea, which is the normal hospitality thing in China, and shared the gospel with him. And that policeman gave his life to Jesus. Simple little lady. I mean, well-educated, but with a simple philosophy of life. It doesn't matter what you do in life. What matters is you are faithful and loyal to Jesus. And that was her message. Auntie Esther, what a testimony. And I never forgot, I knew this lady for the next 20 years. I visited her every time I was in Beijing And she was just a delightful witness. She lived to 99 years of age. She served Jesus right till the day she died. No stopping. She said, there's no such thing as retirement in Christian ministry. You are a witness. You are salt and light no matter what your age. And that's a good one for those of us who are now in our golden years, as they call them, gold teeth and gold other things. The message that Jesus is the most important and that we need to keep our eyes fixed on him. In closing, I just want to mention to you that I'm often asked, if you had a Bible where you cut out the passages that refer to suffering and persecution, what would be the part you miss the most? What part of the Bible If it was cut out, would you miss the most? Or what is the most you think is the most valuable message? That's a tough one because there are so many of them. But I would have to say the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to Jewish background believers. Those who were being persecuted in the first century when it was written, by whom we aren't sure. It could have been even a sermon, some uh, postulate, that was then written down later. But in that book or that letter, we have a message to those who are experiencing persecution because of Jesus. In fact, there are inferences in Hebrews that many of these Jewish background believers were considering going back to Judaism because they were so overwhelmed by the persecution they were facing. And the writer is there to tell them, Jesus is better, greater than anything, anyone, any system. Jesus is the best, is how our contemporaries would express it. He is the best. And he has had people following him for centuries. Even before he came, the promise of his coming was what the Old Testament patriarchs and saints looked forward to, his coming. And even then, they were waiting for him. And so the chapter 11 is the most famous chapter of Hebrews where we have the great faith stories. You have the people who are famous in the Bible, the people who are not so well known, and then a bunch of people who are unknown in that chapter. They were all heroes of faith. And I want to read to you that little passage at the end of the chapter that talks about them. Hebrews 11, 
says others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And that last statement always puzzled me, and I've looked it up in a variety of translations. Uh, Even good old William Barclay, the Greek scholar, who translates it this way. They without us should not find all God's purposes fulfilled. That they without us would not find all God's purposes fulfilled. But then the writer goes on. There's no chapter break in the original. He goes on to make what I believe is the, what my English teachers would say is the critical statement of his letter. Here's the critical statement. Okay? We've had 11 chapters of buildup to who Jesus is in comparison with everyone, everything, every system, including the Jewish legal system. He is the best. And now we come to the end of a statement of faith for the famous, the not so famous, and the unknown. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and here's his statement, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not lose heart and grow weary. Here's this critical statement. Let's throw off the sin that trips us up, that entangles us. Let's run the race with perseverance. Okay? Auntie Esther, 10 years, cleaning toilets. And let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And to me, this passage is the the heart message that I go back to in every difficult situation. No matter what your situation, whether it's economic, whether it's social, whether it's family, or whatever the challenges you face, the author of Hebrews says, run the race with perseverance and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, not on the problems, not on the persecution, not on the challenges, 
not even on other people or even other Christians. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And this was driven home to me by a young man from Vietnam. He, his parents died when he was young. He was looked after by a orphanage, a Christian orphanage during the war. This was during war years in Vietnam. And he had an accident when he was about two years old and he lost his sight. He became blind because of this accident. His name was Lip. Remember it by the thing you have on the front of your mouth, Lip. And Lip grew up to be a strong follower of Jesus, planting house churches all throughout the country. He possibly has planted more house churches in Vietnam than anybody else, even though he's blind. And most recently, one of our colleagues was with him, and he had been beaten by the authorities because of what he does, and he was in bad physical shape. And my colleague said to him, Lip, what is it that gives you the strength to go on and continue on and persevere in spite of all the rough treatment that you get? And he said, oh, that's easy. I just keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. <laughs> How beautiful is that? A man who understands the metaphor, he doesn't have eyesight, but he knows that his passion is kept intact by fixing his eyes on Jesus, not on all of the externals and problems. And brothers and sisters, if you remember nothing more, this is my big idea. If there is a big idea, and what I shared with you today, we stand strong. We throw off the sin that trips us up. We run the race with perseverance. And how do we do it? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I trust that that's your testimony as well. It's part of God's word that speaks to me. And as you read on in Hebrews, read on those next chapters on your own. You find out how do you live then when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, when it comes to the other challenges. So for two or three chapters, the writer of Hebrews goes on to share about how you live when your eyes are fixed on Jesus. God seems to be most visible when times are most awful. And that's something we always have to remember. We, we, you know, if you go through the most awful time of your life, God is still there. And those who've been through it on the other side say, you know, God was there all the time even in the most difficult times. So please say it with me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Ready? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Amen.